And you're listening. And you're listening. You're listening to Sam and Hank. Sam and Sam. To Sam and Radio. Hello and welcome to Sam and Fest Radio. I'm your host, Dave Applin. And I'm Satchel Pondolfino. We're recording here in Homer, Alaska, the unceded and traditional lands of Supiak and Denina people. You're in for an hour of fish fun and music. I hope you're ready. I hope you're prepared. You've mentally prepared for fish fun and music because that's what's going to happen now. <laughs> All three of those things. On our bill today, we have Cousin Curtis. He is becoming a pretty much a regular at Salmon Fest. In 2019, he was hanging out on stage with his pal Harrison B. So we've got a great interview and live recordings from that set coming at you. And he was just announced on the tentative bill for the 2021 Salmon Fest, assuming that moves forward. And I think it will. I've got my fingers crossed. I'm looking forward to live music again, getting outdoors and hanging out with friends. Satchel, who do we have for this week's Salmon Champion? This week's Salmon Champion is Amy Gulick. She's a writer and photographer who resides in Washington state, but has fallen in love with the salmon systems of Alaska and has really incorporated those stories into the foundation of her career. And there's a couple of books that she's well known for, and we're going to talk about those books, both The uh, Salmon in the Trees and The Salmon Way. It's, we've got it here around, around. Yeah, it's a beautiful book. It's kind of like a coffee table style. Or Chaga. Or chaga. Or tea table book. So any kind of table where you're drinking a beverage, <laughs> this book, you would, you would honor the table and the beverage with this book. That's, that's all I'm saying. It's a great book about, not only about fish, but about uh, us, uh, we Alaskans and our relationship with fish. So I'm looking forward to that. But let's get right into it with Harrison B. and Cousin Curtis. Yeah, she got to me. 
Hey there, my name is Cousin Curtis. I am from Telluride, Colorado, and the type of music that I play, I would describe like if uh, blues and bluegrass had a baby. <laughs> I'm Harrison B. out of Seattle, Washington, and uh, we kind of play progressive American soul music. Nice. So, um, have you all played together at all? 
Sparingly? Sparingly? Yeah. Yeah. We uh, linked up probably the first time actually playing together would be in Telluride this past winter. And we were just kind of jamming and playing songs, kind of like cover tunes that we both knew. And there was something there. We're like, we got to just keep this in mind for what might happen in the future. And then uh, Jordan was coming up for Salmon Fest and he reached out and said, hey, got any ideas on songs we could collaborate on? I was like, absolutely. So we, we did a quick 20-minute smash, uh, <laughs> smash together practice session Absolutely. before the show yesterday, and then yeah. um, today it felt a lot tighter, like it, like like we like breathing. <laughs> <laughs> now Curtis is the man, and when I stumbled upon him down there in Colorado, I'd met him, you know, in Juneau, Alaska, kind of by the wayside, and uh, he brought me down to play down there at the uh, shout out to the ski resort, oh. which was a great time, and uh, Grano <laughs> Ranch is you know it's this gig at 10,000 feet. It's this outdoor stage. It's all acoustic and it's four hours, right? And so it's like this crazy gig. And he calls me up about it, and I go down. And once I knew that he was into that, you know, you got to ski in as well. It's crazy. Yeah, you're gonna ride like, the chairlift up with all your gear, and then you yeah. ski down to the venue mid mountain with all your gear set yep. up, play. Yeah. It's insane. So I was like, if this dude can do that, we can hang. So I knew he was good from the start. Heck yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. So is this your first time to Alaska? No, go ahead. No, not at all. I, uh, I'm from Tennessee, born and raised in Middle Tennessee. I came to Juneau originally and found my way to Anchorage. And so this is probably my, I don't know, 10th trip, 12th trip at this point over about five years. Yeah. Um, I lived in Alaska for four years. And two of those years I was in Toke. And the other two years I was in Juneau. I was teaching middle school and high school language arts uh, at both of those schools. Nice. Yeah, and I play music in the summer months, and I ever uh, thought if uh, the summer tour ever breaks even, then I'll try playing music full time. And I've been on the road now for just over four years. That's incredible. Yeah. Do either of you like to fish? I mean, I enjoy it. I would not call myself a fisherman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I have caught one Alaskan salmon, which I know that pales in comparison by a long shot. But I am at least on the scoreboard, and it was a beautiful time. Really an experience. It was a silver, so it fought a little bit. Yeah, got a good one. That's awesome. Yeah. So, um, well, you live in the Pacific Northwest, right? Correct. So there's like a salmon landscape there. How um, do you think salmon impacts like your community in Seattle? Absolutely. I think you know, obviously, it's kind of the gateway to a lot of things up here and a lot of things fishing as well. So Seattle, in particular, is obviously feeling it as much as anyone. Um, neighborhoods such as Ballard, you know, are home to so many ships and uh, it's such a big city, you don't think about it like that, but it very much so is an industrial hub in that way. And so even down there, you know, it's something that I'm concerned about. Yeah. Um, so while you're on tours, do you all, how do you all see like impacts of climate change or environmental impacts um, while you're, you know, seeing so much of this country? I think I would start off by saying, uh, when you travel around, you can't ignore the obvious signs of like, you know, weather patterns saying this is the hottest summer on record and this is the hottest winter on record. And then there's the drastic adverse where it's, you know, this is the coldest on record and this is the coldest on And you go back and forth and it, I, I don't think there's a coincidence there, you know? Uh, I think it's, it's in our faces. Yeah, I think I can only second that, you know, and regardless of what people want to debate is the impact. I know personally the Mendenhall Glacier in Juneau just even in my lifetime of experiencing it, right? Going under the ice caves and watching them slowly disappear. It's probably a very vivid point for me that kind of embodies the whole ideal. And for whatever reason it's happening, it's sad to see things like that go and all the impacts that trickle down that are much more serious beyond just how I feel about it as well. Yeah. So do you all ever incorporate activism into your music? 
You know, I don't. And I've been asked this question before, especially by my grandmother, who's very much in the activist world. And she's like, well, what do you stand for with your music? And uh, for me, I want to make people dance and to have a good time and smile. And I feel as though if I started to go down a political or an activist path, I alienate half of my audience. And there might be my ideas and ideals that I want to share, and I'll sh I feel like I need to share them in a different way and keep my music, I don't know, is bipartisan the right word? Where it's, yeah. it's, it's really, it's for the people and it's for everyone. And maybe with that, it can bring people together in a sense versus trying to bring them together for one specific. You know, I, that's a very good way to respond to that, honestly. And kind of the way that I see it is similarly and not, I, I in my music and my lyrics when I write and we play as a band, I try to be, uh, I try to ask questions without providing answers because I don't want to tell people what to think. I've always made it a point to not want to do that. What I want to do is ask questions that get you to think for yourself. And I do think that topics such as, you know, the reason we're sitting here right now talking about the mind environmental impact, those are questions that if you're conscious to any degree, you will find the morally correct answer to. You just have to ask it for yourself. Yeah. And so that's kind of how I've approached it. Yeah, we all need clean water and like yeah. to eat fish, right? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Great. Um, so my last question for you all is what gives you hope? Hope. You narrow it down. Hope for hope for what? Or hope just... for a beautiful future. Okay, all right, all right. I think, I think, in traveling around, you see these different parts of the country that are not all homogenized and you know generic and wrapped into one. Of course, that might be what you see with the billboards and the main roadside pull-offs and stuff like that. But if you get off and you play, you play music for the people that that need to hear it and want to hear it. That's what gives me hope because you never know what kind of experience you're going to have and in front of an audience of, let's say, you know, a crowd like today where everybody's hopping and having a good time, that gives me hope to continue playing and continue uh, spreading good joy and cheer. And uh, even you play for a crowd of four people at Garano Ranch when it's eight degrees and the wind is blowing sideways and they're still enjoying it. And it's like, all right, then they need to hear this too. And I need, I, I feel honored to give it to them. You know, I don't, I honestly, this is, I'll answer it honestly. How about that? I, I love honest answers. Gave up on the word hope a couple years back just because it was an empty ideal for me that I didn't want to get lost in. And it sounds cliche and it probably is, but I find peace in taking it one note at a time at this point. And I genuinely try to just live in that moment. And you obviously have to think about your future to some extent, but if you can enjoy your present and kind of guide it to where you need it to be, I guess that'd be hope in my own way. That's beautiful. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you for uh, interviewing with Sam Fest Radio. Honeybee, I'm gonna see the world change its way. People all around are gonna come to sing your name. They can't seem to get enough of life and love and trust. You'll be there to show you care and lift their spirits up right now. Only be my life complete each day I sing to you. Because of this, I can't dismiss my dreams so clear in view. Came to me on frozen wings, shaking off the frost. You can tell your love that she's the one or all hope is lost. Honey, be. Honeybee, 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 
sing to you. The less I know, the more I grow to bring you something new. Honey, be I just need to save me from my woes. I am your man, and as I am, my love will only grow. Honey, be. Honey, be. Oh, honey, be. The sun wakes my eyes I hear your voice Before all the noise This work can be so deafening The struggle in real time My soul is sinking though And I do believe it's time Honey bee Honey bee Oh honey bee Honey bee Someday soon you'll see I'm true in telling you these lies. This world's river will shake and quivers and it shivers up your spine. If I'm false, my life I'll toss to the wind and seek anew. Till I'm incomplete unless I sing each day to you. Honey bee, honey bee, oh honey bee.
Welcome to Sunday. Thank you so much for everything this weekend. Hanson B on guitar. My name is Cousin Curtis. And we sincerely hope to see you soon. Cousin Curtis is quickly becoming a staple of Salmon Fest, and he's really created quite the following. And Harrison B, too. They've, they've played together before at Salmon Fest, and Alaskans are just really embracing them as a duo. And Cousin Curtis normally plays, like, early to mid-afternoon on the main stage, and he his act is really the one that catalyzes the, the festival from a, like, we're going to sit back and sip on beer and enjoy this music to getting up and actually stomping our feet and twirling around and adding some livelihood to this to this moment. And yeah, I really appreciate that about him. And I just I just love Salmon Fest that, you know, it brings in such a diversity of artists every year, but there's also some artists you can just count on. And that's what starts to make a music festival feel like home and I'm just so excited that he's on the bill again and we can go back to to our Salmon Celebratory homeland. You know, for me, Salmon Fest is all about relationships. It's all about connecting with other people over music or conversation or just hanging out. It's interesting that these guys talk about Seattle now and Ballard and the fishing industry, and it sort of belies the history of the place. But as our salmon champion, Amy Gulick, will tell us the history of that section of the United States is really important for us to understand that Alaska's intact salmon systems are unique and worth celebrating. And our salmon champion is in the business of thinking about relationships, starting with her neighbors in the north, uh, that would be southeast Alaska for us, and then uh, working even more broadly across the state. I'm Amy Gulick. I'm speaking to you from my home on Whidbey Island in Washington's Puget Sound, which is also the ancestral homelands of the Snohomish, Tulalip, and Coast Salish people. I was one of those kids who was always outside, climbing trees, swimming in ponds, scraping my knees, digging in the mud, um, looking for frogs and turtles. And so, you know, the more time I spent outside, of course, I was very in tune to what else lived uh, outside uh, other than myself. I loved animals, I loved art, and I loved storytelling. So when I was a kid growing up you know, in Illinois, which was farm country, all I knew about salmon at the time was that salmon came in a can. And, but the other thing I knew about salmon was that I really loved them. I mean, I, I loved the taste, I loved the texture, I loved the color. Kids growing up in the Midwest, you know, eating seafood was, uh, while we did it, it was usually, you know, frozen fish sticks that didn't really have a whole lot of flavor, you know, by the time they got to us. But there was something about that can of salmon and opening it up. I just, again, it was, it was such a bold, strong, you know, enduring, you know, flavor, smell, you know, taste, you know, everything about it. But I realized at the time, too, that, you know, tasting that salmon, even though it was just coming from the can, it gave me a taste of this fish from a faraway land. And it also gave me a taste of the people who, who lived with this fish. And, you know, like I was doing as a kid, wanting to know where I lived and the creatures I lived with and, and what and who did I share my home with, I think when I would taste that canned salmon... 
I would think about, you know, where where on earth does this fish come from? And I think it was just that taste of salmon that, that took me to somewhere else. I can now look back, you know, on my childhood and see, well, of course I ended up where I ended up. For me, you know, photography and writing and storytelling, it's always been a passion. It's something I've always done as a kid. And as I was growing up and trying to figure out, you know, what I was going to do with my life, that passion was always there. And so when I moved out west, I had the opportunity to pursue uh, my passion. So um, back in my 20s, then I started publishing my work. I was doing a lot of magazine stories and just um, never looking back. So when I moved to Washington as a young adult, I quickly learned all about wild salmon. And I also learned that we had lost most of our wild salmon. So in the lower 48, you know, where I live, we, we once had staggering runs of salmon. I mean, the Columbia River system here was once one of the greatest salmon producing systems you know, in the entire world. We used to have incredible coastal temperate rainforest, old growth. We've lost more um, than 90% of our original wild salmon abundance and our original old growth forests. You know, in the lower 48, when it comes to wild salmon, we are very much in the, in the phase of recovery and restoration. Salmon need habitat. You know, they need clean, cool, fresh water to spawn and rear, and they need a healthy ocean where they can find enough food to mature. I don't think that that is rocket science, but down here we've altered, destroyed their habitat to such an extent that trying to restore and put it back together is difficult on so many levels. It's difficult ecologically, biologically, financially, economically, politically. It's a really tough sell to convince a public to restore something that they don't even know that they've lost. We just chose a different way of life down here. And, and it's sad uh, because when I'm, when I'm down here walking in a forest and I'm, I'm on what should be uh, a stream, you know, just loaded with salmon spawning at a certain time of year, I, I feel that pain. And, it, and that pain, it's one of loss. And so Alaska has always been this place that has so intrigued me because you haven't lost that. You know, you still have wild salmon. You still have coastal temperate rainforest. So when I decided to pursue this story of the Tongass National Forest, you know, salmon in the trees, you know, Southeast Alaska, I was doing a lot of research, you know, before I, I actually traveled there and spent a lot of time there, you know, just trying to figure out, you know, where should I go? You know, what should I try and, and photograph? And I am not a scientist by training, but I do read, you know, scientific journals and papers from time to time as best as I can. And... In my research, I um, stumbled across um, a scientific paper that talked about this remarkable connection between salmon and trees. And I struggled because it was written you know, for other scientists, but I, I got through it. And when I got to the end, the light bulb went on and something clicked and I went, whoa, do, do you mean what you're really trying to tell me is that there are salmon in the trees in Southeast Alaska? And that is really what they were trying to tell me. They just didn't say it like that. You know, instead they said the upstream flow of marine derived nutrients in a terrestrial environment. And for me as a storyteller, when an idea won't leave my head 
that is when I know I have to pursue it. And that idea, that concept that there's a place where there are salmon in the trees, that just would not leave my head. And so it stuck and I decided, all right, I, I have to learn more about this. So then I started my travels, spending a lot of time in Southeast Alaska. And it was, it was just absolutely remarkable, you know, to be in Southeast during salmon time. Just seeing just, you know, gobs and gobs of salmon leaving the ocean, making their way into their birth streams, you know, to spawn the next generation. So salmon are born in freshwater streams and rivers. They head out to the oceans to mature. You know, they come back as adults to their birth streams to spawn the next generation. And when they do, there are lots of other animals waiting for them. And in southeast Alaska, there is the highest concentration of black bears in the world, one of the highest concentrations of brown bears in the world. And it's no surprise why. You know, again, when you when you see, you know, just gobs of salmon coming into more than 5,000 salmon spawning streams found throughout the Tongass in southeast Alaska. So bears, these coastal bears, salmon is a very important part of their diet. You know, it helps them put on enough fat that gets them through their winter hibernation. So they're doing their darndest when the salmon are, are spawning to catch as much as they can to be able, you know, to put on the weight that they need. So scientists studying this phenomenon uh, of salmon in the trees, they originally set out to study how much salmon bears ate. And the only way that they're going to do that, right, is to sit on salmon streams and watch particular bears catch salmon all day for days. And what they quickly realized was that, you know, bears, a lot of bears don't sit on the streams and eat that salmon. They take it, they grab it, and they run into the woods with it because they're trying to avoid having their meal stolen by other bears. So the researchers are like, oh my gosh, in order to quantify, you know, how many salmon bears are eating, we're going to have to go into the woods and follow these bears. And they went into the woods and like, wow, look at all these salmon that are left here. They're everywhere. And then, and then they looked up and they said, wow, look at the size of these trees, you know, that are near the salmon stream. And hmm, you know, what's going on here? Our researchers studying this have documented that one bear can carry 40 fish from a stream in just eight hours. So that adds up to a lot of salmon dragged and dropped into the forest. And over time, the nutrients from the bodies of all of those salmon decompose into the soil and the trees absorb them through their roots. So one of the nutrients that the salmon are bringing in their bodies, it's a, a nitrogen variant, it's called nitrogen 15 and it comes from the ocean. So what scientists have found in the trees near these salmon streams, they started analyzing tree core samples, is a ridiculously high amount of nitrogen 15. Once you understand this remarkable connection between salmon and trees, you quickly see that everything in the Tongass in Southeast Alaska is connected. So, you know, bears, eagles, marine mammals, all the wildlife that relies on this remarkable fish. The, the health of the forest in parts of the Tongass very much is um, affected by salmon. Salmon are the driver you know, of, of that particular ecosystem. And, and, and what would that ecosystem be like without salmon? But then people, you know, as well, of course. And, I, and I'm not going to leave people out of this equation. Her last thought about people being integrally connected to the salmon system led her to her latest book, The Salmon Way, 
And while this was a departure from her normal focus, which is strictly on the ecosystem functions of salmon, she really honed in on the depth of the salmon-human connection in this new book. I really wanted to ask everybody kind of the same sets of questions and see how they responded. Um, you know, just, you know, tell me, tell me about your relationship with salmon. That's really why I was asking. I started noticing that there were these common themes that kept coming up. There were things like family, community, culture, connection to the land, connection to a home stream, a valued way of life, passing all of this on to my children. And what I realized, it didn't matter who I asked that question to, whether people fished for their food, for their livelihood, for fun, everybody gave me the same answers. And I was so struck by that because what people were touching on were these universal human values, you know, throughout the world. I mean, isn't that what we all want? We all want a connection to a place. We all want a community that we belong to. Uh, we all want some kind of security. And in this case, it's usually in the form of food or maybe, you know, your livelihood. Salmon are providing, you know, not only the most basic human needs, you know, for for people who have relationships with them in Alaska, but they go beyond those basic human needs too. And one woman actually told me, she said, oh my gosh, salmon, salmon are like oxygen to us. We breathe them, we live them, we eat. I mean, our whole world, our whole life is sustained and made possible by salmon. So we can't even imagine a life without them because it would be as if we weren't able to breathe. Another common response to that question, and it didn't matter, uh, again, if I was asking commercial fishermen, sport fishermen, native people, didn't matter. Um, you know, what would your life be like without salmon? The common answer that I got from everybody was, without salmon, there would be no community. One of the best ways to make friends is to invite a salmon. And I know when I'm standing in the Kasilof River with my dip net, I may be surrounded by strangers, but they won't be strangers for long. And pretty soon we'll be helping each other, rooting for each other, even saving each other's spaces. One of the things that really set me on the path to pursuing this book, The Salmon Way, was a conversation that I had with a stranger who subsequently became a friend. This was a woman, I was in Sitka, Alaska. Her name was Terry Rothkar. She's no longer uh, with us. Terry is, uh, was Clinkett, and she was a brilliant, very talented master weaver. And so I met her, she was at the Sitka National Historical Park. She was one of the artists. She was weaving a traditional robe, traditionally made from mountain goat wool, and there was a hide that was sitting uh, on a table next to her loom. And we were all encouraged to touch and stroke this hide and you know, feel this mountain goat wool. And next to the wool um, were strips of spruce root and cedar bark that were raw materials that went into uh, her basket weaving. And we were encouraged to pick that up and, and get an idea of what it might be like to weave uh, with those materials. So I'm just having this wonderful, you know, sensory experience. And Terry's also telling stories of her Clinket Raven ancestors and how they live and continue to live in Southeast Alaska. And so I, I say to Terry, wow, with such incredible resources in your homeland, it's easy to see how your people have been able to thrive here. And 
Terry stopped what she was doing and she turned and looked me straight in the eye and very politely, <laughs> but forcefully, she said, resources? She said, the mountain goat and the trees, the salmon, everything here, those aren't resources. We have relationships with the goat, with the trees, with the salmon. And what a difference the way we talk about things makes in the way that we think about things and the way we treat things. Terry helped me stop thinking in terms of resources and instead helped me think in terms of relationships. So I always encourage people when you use that word resources, try and catch yourself and replace it with relationships and see what that does to your mindset. So in the case of salmon, if we think about salmon in, as a resource, then we tend to think about salmon as a commodity, as an end product. Maybe they're just frozen fish sticks you know, that end up in Japan, or maybe they're just uh, a paycheck. And that's not really respecting the salmon, is it? If we think about salmon you know, as a resource. But let's think about salmon as a relationship. You know, what is my relationship to salmon? What is your relationship to salmon? changes everything. If you have a relationship with salmon, then like any relationship, there's, there's give and take, there's maintaining that relationship, there's nourishing that relationship. So if salmon are giving you something, what can you give back to salmon? And, and that's how I think now, thanks to Terry, uh, by just replacing the word resource, with relationship. And the basis for any healthy relationship is respect. So there's another R word, right? <laughs> so let's replace resources with relationship and then think about how do you respect that relationship? How do you nurture it? How do you keep it going? If there's one thing that I hope that this book can do, it's to help Alaskans who value their relationships uh, with salmon to understand that people who may live very different lives um, from them also value salmon in much the same way um, that they do and very much want their ways of life to continue for their children and their grandchildren. It's really great to hear other people talk about the connection to salmon in such a heart-centered way, but also a really real way where we're thinking about how salmon serves the community. It's very measurable, but it also just is something you experience. Well, I, th I think Amy does a wonderful job of telling the story of how Alaskans relate to salmon and to each other around salmon in a very wonderful way, both uh, pictures and words. And... Uh, for folks outside the state, it's a great introduction to a very strong culture that we don't take for granted, but we we recognize we're a part of. Well, it's time. Yes, it is. It's time for our Jammin' with Salmon segment. And let's start off with uh, a tune from Matt Embry. Is 
Time. 
Joe Funk on the bass, everybody.
That was a tune from the Kitchen Dwellers. Next we have the Tea Sisters. Feel as way this is a river flowing through the sands of time. Taking all what I have won't be needed much this time. Taking all what I have is I want. folks party's over satchel if you were to make a list of people that needed to be thanked at the end of this episode because you're a much better list maker than me who would you include in that list <laughs> well i definitely include our episode features we've got cousin curtis and harrison b and they were interviewed by my friend ali rosenbluth at salmon fest 2019 and of course i'd like to thank our salmon champion amy gullick for sharing her salmon stories with us 
Oh, yeah, and the Salmon Fest team who put together this remarkable event. And Cook and the Keeper that believed in our vision for a Salmon Fest radio podcast and agreed to house the project. Yeah, I love the fact that somebody had a vision for an audio product, so that's great. I'd also like to thank our team that recorded the music live at Salmon Fest 2019, Pastor Tim and Brian Belay. Our pals at KBBI in Homer, Alaska. And who could forget Kira Hardy, our producer who's used her mad skills to put together another wonderful Salmon Fest radio episode. We bid you adieu. And don't forget, Spawn on Alaska. Hey, this is Harrison B. And this is Cousin Curtis. And you're, you're listening, listening to Salmon, Salmon Fest, Fest Radio. Beautiful. That was really precious. <laughs>